you're one of those people who has thought, I really fancy having a go at writing a book, but don't know where to start. Perhaps you've already written your masterpiece and you're wondering whether to self-publish or pitch your work to a publisher. Well, look no further than today's episode. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. It's Ian Cleverdon here and welcome to the audio podcast designed to help anyone who wishes to further themselves with their personal hobbies and professional development. The focus in this series being on the creative arts. In this episode, I sit down with best-selling crime fiction author Malcolm Hollingdrake. Malcolm's the creator of the Harrogate Crime series featuring DCI Cyril Bennett. This series is currently formed of 12 books which he self-publishes through Amazon. He's known for his highly detailed plots, wonderfully constructed characters and eloquent location descriptions, mainly based in Yorkshire. Not only that, but he also has a critically acclaimed two-book Merseyside crime series published by Hobeck Books. So if you want to understand the differences between self-publishing and working with a publisher, this episode is definitely for you. However, you'll hear that Malcolm came to writing crime fiction late in his career, a fact that may resonate with some listeners who have been toying with the idea of writing a book. Thanks to those of you that have commented on how much you're enjoying this series so far. It's a great pleasure to produce, not least because the creative arts is an area that's very close to my heart. Please do keep the feedback coming and share with anyone whom you know will benefit from the wisdom that my guests produce in this series. Please do keep the feedback coming and share with anyone whom you know would benefit from the wisdom that my guests share with you in this series. So let's dive into the world of fiction writing with Malcolm. Malcolm Hollandrake, thanks very much for joining us on Half Hour Mentor. Thank you for having me. Can I start with the question I ask all my guests to start off with? If we go back to your teenage and your student years, what was the first job or career that you wanted to do? Going back a long way, and if I go back to the teenage years, um, the first job I really wanted to do was be a motor mechanic. Uh, I was fascinated by uh, cars at the time, and uh, I just thought it was a way forward. Um, but I was fasc- also fascinated by antiques, strangely enough. And as a kid, I used to go in and buy antiques and sell them. And I used to specialise in pewter. And a little story was I went into an antique shop in Bolton Junction, and she had some candelabra on the table. And I think they're about, I'm going to say, £60, but which were a lot of money. And I just said to him, could I buy those? And she said, yeah, of course you can. I said, but I can't pay for them. I said, but if you bought them at £80, if you sell them, I can pay the £60. And she said, yes. And the week after, they sold. And I, came, I just got a £20 note for nothing. So it really did inspire me to, to do that. And, and as a kid, I made quite a bit of money doing that. Wow, entrepreneurship in practice at a very, very young age. age yes, <laughs> yeah. But fascinating. Um, so then I, I went, my first job interview was to be a, a lab technician at Eshel Sewage Works. Um, the guy who interviewed me didn't inspire me at all. Coming up towards the end of school, I, I just decided that um, maybe teaching, because my brother had looked at it, but he went into accountancy. And Ripon College was available. So I applied and, and then that was the decision that I made. Very sadly, I think what was lacking at that time was really creative careers advice within schools in the 60s. So if you were academically strong, there were certain careers you would be directed towards. And if not, you, there, there were others. Um, but there was nothing imaginative. Nobody would ever say to me, you could be a curator of a museum or into the arts mm-hmm. or... I felt I was pushed into a position of taking a job that maybe I didn't want. I'm glad I, I was pushed that way now, but uh, 
yeah, I, I would have just loved some more career guidance at that age. So you went into teaching at that stage. What, what was was it university? How did you go about that? I went very late on to uh, Ripon Teacher Training College for an interview. And the gentleman who interviewed me was feeding a, a gerbil through a pipette whilst I was being interviewed. And we were talking about motor mechanicing and things, and he asked me quite a few questions ab- about engines, because he had a fascination, obviously. Whilst feeding the gerbil with While the pipette. feeding the gerbil. <laughs> and I just thought, this is, this is wonderful. This is something I've never experienced before. It sounds like the plot for a crime book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? And... Um, and I was accepted, and I was accepted to, uh, for, to, to read English and history. But on arrival, I actually saw their art department and asked to change. And I, I studied history and art, and that was fantastic. But that wasn't really... By going to Ripon, the biggest piece of luck I had was meeting my wife in the first weekend we were there. Yeah. And so we've been together 46 years and <clears throat> she's been just uh, a total uh, inspiration right the way through that time and um, given me every encouragement to do whatever uh, direction I wanted to take. Um, so it, it was a great move. It was probably the best move I ever made. How long did you teach for? I left Teacher Training College in 1974 and then I, I got my first teaching post in Bingley. My wife then got a post in uh, Wigan where she was born. I then looked for promotion across here and I, I became a deputy head teacher in three years of qualifying as a teacher. Uh, and I had this ambition to be a head teacher by the age of 30. And you have these realisations, don't you, when you're working, you think, oh, that's going to be great. But it took me away from the one thing that I loved and that was being in front of kids. I, I'd become a bursar, I'd become a manager, I'd become, and that's not what I trained for. I trained to teach children. And it's been a privilege so I, I, I then became, I say, I had two deputy headships. I taught in Cairo as a senior teacher of a thousand pupil school. I then worked in uh, Northern Cyprus and then came back and started again as a deputy. I then had to be seconded into headship as head teachers became ill and then went into special education. And I'd never been in special, I'd never put my foot in and they said, could you become a head to take a special school through Ofsted? So we feel it's going to fail on curriculum. So I, I went to sit outside this school for a day just to get a feel for what, what it was like. And um, I thought the challenge was worth going for. And uh, enjoyed probably six years within that school. So I finished when I was 55. 32 years. Wow. A privilege. So an absolute privilege. And a full career, effectively, a full career. in teaching. And I never had a boring day. And I couldn't have written anything, really. I couldn't have written a novel during that time because I was just so busy with, with preparation and planning and, and, and managing schools and, and, and different challenges that were put my way. Right. Uh, that's an interesting point, which we'll come on to in a second, because there'll be listeners now who probably are in full-time jobs thinking, I've got a book in me, how do I go about it? And I really want to pick your brain about that mm. in a moment, if that's OK. You mentioned Cyprus as well, and that was your first book, I think, um, it came, came into. It was. Before we get into that then, what, where mm. did the desire for writing come in, uh, and at what stage? I'd always written uh, stories for children, always, always assembly stories, which I never read, I actually told so I would learn them and, and tell them in the morning. And I, had, I did a, a story time at the end of, uh, on a Friday, to give teachers non-contact time. So I would have, say, 350 kids in the hall, just with me. And um, it was about captivating 350 children. And um, the better the story, the, the better they responded. So that's where, we, that's where it really kicked off. 
And um, I, th- I then wrote the first book and, and didn't do anything else. And, and I'll come back to the first book in a little while Ian, with you. But I, I saw a short story competition in the Lancashire magazine and I'd, I'd, I'd hit the doldrums really after the first one and I thought, well, I'll have a go at this. And um, I didn't hear anything for months. It took me about 25 minutes to write. It had to include as many town, Lancashire town names as possible. And it had to be exactly a thousand words. So 25 minutes later, I'd done it. Debbie saw it. She liked it. We sent it off. Heard nothing for months and months. And one Friday evening, I got a call from the editor to say, you've won the short story competition. So you've £250 coming your way and a year's subscription to the Lancashire magazine. But that wasn't the important element. I, I received a critique from the judging panel. And that really did uh, give me the impetus to sort of, maybe I'm not a bad writer, maybe I can do something else. And had you written your first book at this stage? I'd written the first book, I'd submitted it to a number of publishers. Self-publishing then wasn't a direction you could truly take. Um, And when I'd had the thanks but no thanks letters, one becomes quite despondent. You think maybe maybe I shouldn't even try writing, because a lot of effort goes into writing a book. Uh, And I know people liked it, and I was quite selective about the people who read it, and I was open to any sort of criticism. And that book was then self-published, but it was self-published in an unusual way because I put it to a company who formatted the book, who then uploaded it to uh, Kindle, and um, off it went. You never know what to expect. You really do not know what to expect. And um, it it wasn't as effective as I thought. I thought thought I'd have a lot more hits on the book than I had. But then I wasn't advertising it. Anyway, it, 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 it gets lost in the myriad books that are on Kindle. You just, you're just another, another face, and you're an unknown name as well. But um, it was only after achieving the, the short story competition did I think, well, maybe I should have another go at that. And when was that? When did you win the short story competition? I won the, I won the short story in 2015, I think. Was it 2015 or 2014? And um, so that's not that far away from no, no, no. having your success. No, 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 no. And then I started the Harrogate series, and in 2016, uh, those first three books were accepted uh, to by a publisher. They pub they, they published them in November and December, two in November, one in December, and uh, I thought that's crazy. That's crazy. Why would you do that? But I thought, well, they know better than I. I was away on holiday, came back from holiday. They seemed to have done very well. I was contacted by them and said, would you like to sign a further four-book deal? So that was seven books. And now that frightened me, actually, Ian, because I didn't know whether I could write seven books. I mean, didn't know whether I could write five books. So you bravely say, yes, of course, thank you very much, sign the dotted line. That leap of faith. And, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Looking over the cliff And having somebody behind me like Debbie who said, you know, we can, you can do it, you'll, you'll, you'll do it, yeah. manager. You've got the ideas, you've always been imaginative, you've never been short of ideas for stories for kids. Have a go at it. Handy living with a mentor, really, I suppose. Yes, indeed. Well, well, she's just been so supportive with it. And also, she's an English specialist, so if I'm unsure, I'll ask her to read it. And she's very positively critical, if that's the right term. She will will guide rather than... She'll sell me if it's wrong. Mm. She'll say, that doesn't work, that's... But she's also very encouraging, and I think you need that behind you. You need that sort of support, because it takes a lot of time. I'd like to go back to your first book. I want to explore the Harrogate series and yes. how you approach that in a moment. But if we go right back to your first book, then 
how did you go about writing it? You mentioned about obviously you didn't have time working full time to do it. So, what was the methodology, and how did you plan your days? Coming home from coming home from work, I would I would give a certain amount of time to adding something to it, and uh, I, I would make sure that every day I added some words. Didn't matter how many words. Uh, I'm more disciplined now. There was no urgency to get it finished, but there was an excitement about writing it. And it was the process that I really enjoyed. So I wasn't rushing to get it finished. I was just enjoying the process of that. And during obviously school holidays, I could do it. And I was writing a lot of it on a little Scion flip-up Oyster computer thingy, if you remember them. Yes. And I, we, we went away to Madeira and I would sit, take it with me and whenever I have a moment, I would type a bit more and then close the clamshell and put it away and then a bit more and a bit more. Um, and then it was knowing when to finish it. That was the difficulty. Is, is it finished? Is it done? Am I happy with it? And then going over it and eventually you have to release it. You have to push it away and say, I can't do any more to that. Mm. I think that's a common thing with musicians as well, who you know, some of whom we have on in this series, where it's knowing when to stop and say that's the song, that's and it's finished. I'd imagine that's, that's it, a... it is. It's like a painter. It's like anybody creative. You can actually work on an oil painting and get it just really well, and you can just take it that step too far and it can kill the whole thing. Yeah, and and it's the same with writing. And I think you've got to be, you've got to know when when it's finished. Now, in five years' time after you've been practising and writing for five, six years, you look back on that and think, I could have done a far better job on that book. Mm. What you have to say to yourself is, that is a moment in time. Mm. It was my first book, and it is what it is. Don't change it. And, and you will find when, when you're writing, more and more people who review your books say, if they've read them all, this book gets better every time. Mm. And so it should, if you're working on your craft. And particularly with feedback that you get from readers, I mean, I would imagine that Amazon's a great way of getting feedback with yes. reviews and things these yeah. these days as well. So, I mean, and and now obviously you're a critically acclaimed author. You mentioned the Harrogate series, there's a Merseyside series as well. So there'll be doubtlessly listeners here who go, "Yes, I love the books." They know them and they're eager to hear how you go about them. And there'll be others who don't know mm. uh, as well. And I, I'm hoping, in particular, there'll be some that are thinking. Let's have some advice about how I write that book. So I'm keen to know what sort of challenges you've faced, and particularly now, you know, now that you're more practised at it, there's doubtlessly lots of lessons learned. How do you go about your writing process? I think discipline is key. I think you have to set aside a certain amount of time to write. People say to me, oh, I'm, I'd like to write a book. Well, unless you sit down and start, you're never going to write it. Some people start a book and say, I'm writing one. Well, you've got to finish it too. And I think it's about that, that discipline. I think there's also not accepting any mediocrity. You've got to really work the craft. You've got to try and make it so people immediately are interested in the story. You've, you've got to have style. You've got to look at how ways in which the, uh, bring bring people into the story itself. But how do you do that? You, you do it by various techniques, and I think I've learned that it's how, how the chapters are set, um, how you start off. Do you start off in the first person to bring people in or, do, or, or not? Um, there are various styles and, and techniques that you can use and it's only by, I think, I've never been a real reader but a lot of authors have read and read and read and they know certain ways that of starting a book or developing a book. I've only go by the way that I can and that's by the process that I've learned. So you don't of, read other people's work? No, <laughs> non-fiction, non-fiction now only. Wow. Um, I had one series that I really loved, and that was a guy called Robert Ryan. 
and his were really linking history with, with, with the present day. And they were sort of f faction, really, if, if you can call it that. And that's the sort of style that I adopted because it's the only style I really knew. And I liked it. Um, Ronald Fiennes is another one who really has that style for me. I also collect people and people who can help me along the way. So a pathologist, a coroner, a, 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 an editor, a, a person who reads a lot and give the book to them when it's finished. Um, a chemist, go to the local chemist and ask them a question if you have a problem with a, a drug or a, something that you want to find out. A scene of crimes officer, critical. You know, just bring them in and, and you need it at a certain time. You don't pester them, but when you think you need direct guidance, ask. Because if you don't get the facts right when you're researching, your readers will let you know publicly. That's right. Has, has that happened? Yeah, that has happened. <laughs> that has happened. And I had a very interesting story. Um, one of the characters is standing in Salford Keys, and they say the lights on the media city are pretentious, which is the BBC building. And I received an email from somebody who said, I'm really enjoying Only the Dead until I read the lights on the BBC media city building are pretentious. I designed them. <laughs> So of all the light designers in all the world, he had to read my book. So that gave me another element that I had to be careful of. I had to be careful when writing, because I write real streets, real places, real people, sort of people who live in Harrogate. So you'll have to go and visit them to make sure it's absolutely... Walk the streets. I, I use Google Street Plan, I use Google Maps, but then I'll go and walk it, because they're so out of date, to Google. So I walk it. And um, if you're going to be critical... In a, in a, if you can, a positive way, but fairly. And I know that certain authors have found themselves in very hot water through having a political mind, and, and you have to tread very carefully. Uh, talk to other authors is another one that I've found have been very helpful. And, and I've found that the crime-writing community are so helpful, really helpful. If you have a problem, if you have a worry contact any of them they're prepared to, to talk you through things that's good to know because i would have thought that some the impression you would get is that well i'm keeping my stories to myself i'm not going to share any little tips with you but no, that's fantastic. not the case no not at all and if you go to the harrogate crime writing festival uh, even people like ian rankin are prepared to come and talk to you about you know i've got an idea what do you think and and, and they will they're, they're, they're really open and right. uh, i love it i just love that camaraderie between those groups that's really useful. Uh, Harrogate, I mentioned about your Harrogate crime series. How did this, that series come about? I was looking, when I'd won the Cut Short Story competition, I was looking for a place. I wanted to write a crime. I wanted to write a series after writing the standalone. I wanted to develop characters. I wanted to create characters. And I wanted to develop them. Possibly godlike that, isn't it? You want to make sure that these people live and, and, and then marry and carry on and, and so on. <laughs> and I wanted to do that as a challenge to myself. And I read in the Daily Telegraph that Harrogate was the happiest place in the UK to live. I also knew it very well because I travelled through it every time I went to college and came home. My grandfather was born in Ramsgill, so we, he used to take us out as kids to the Dales. So I knew, you know, all that area, Brim Rocks and so on. And when you come from Bradford in the late 50s or 60s, it was quite an industrial city. It was smoggy, it was smoky. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't pleasant at times. But coming into Harrogate with a stray of 200 acres of open grassland in the middle of the town, 
it, it was just mind-blowing. And so knowing it was the happiest place in the ukulele and knowing I had some knowledge of it, I thought, I'll introduce a little bit of crime. And um, so I did and loved it. I loved writing the, the whole process and creating DCI School Bennett and David Owen has been not only a pleasant challenge, but I've just, it's a part of my family now. I've read all the series and the, the characters just jump off the page to me. But equally, I think, as a lot of readers will find, my impression of the looks of Cyril Bennett and, and, and David Owen are completely different to the next person. Indeed. From that. And there's an issue as well, because when, when the series was actually bought for audiobook, um, the first three books were actually uh, taken. I asked the publisher if um, I would be involved in choosing the voice. Because I had a voice in my head. When I'm writing Bennett, I have this voice. I, have the, I know what he looks like, I know what he sounds like, I know how he behaves. And they said, yes, 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 of course you will, of course you will. The first time I heard the first book was when I had to buy it from Audible. Wow. Wow. And now this brings in another point, which is interesting, that when you sign a contract with a, a, a publisher, it's a two-way street. They have an obligation and a responsibility, as, as you do. And if they don't fulfil that obligation... You either have to think, do I stay with them or do I pull away from them? Um, in my case, I pulled away. And then I, I reissued the whole of the seven books. Or was it? You know, it was seven books then because I'd finished the contract. I'd finished my uh, set number of books with them. And then I self-published them. And that was the hardest work I've ever, ever done in the shortest possible time. Why was that hard? Because I had to get them back out because they came off. They take them away from Amazon and then you have to get them back on there pretty quickly. So you take the book, I had to design new covers. I kept the titles because if you keep the title, you keep the ratings and the reviews. Right. If you take, change the title and the cover, you lose everything. So you start again, really. Serendipity played a lead part in getting that title, the, the book covers done. And um, we got them back out there fairly quickly. And then I started writing the next one. But just before I left that publisher, they commissioned me to write a new series. Again, they wanted it set in Yorkshire, but with a female detective. So within 12 months, not only had I, uh, had I written these two books, I then actually took this, them away and then reached. So those sat waiting. They sat dormant, the two books, for a little while. And I waited for a publisher to come along. And fortunately, Holbeck Books came in to view. And a, a friend of mine had already signed with them. And so I thought, well, I'll submit. And um, I've been thrilled. Because publishers, as I say, have a responsibility. Now, Holbeck have been great because they look after the, the first person in, but they also look after the second person, the last person to come in. So within that stable of authors, they, I feel as though they each get the same amount of support and, uh, that they can give. And they've also said that we're not taking on a lot more writers because we've enough paper plates spinning and we need to keep every paper plate spinning as best we can. So credit to Holbeck and um, I owe them another book and they were kind enough to let me write book 13 of the Harrogate and put book three on hold. Uh, and this that's a sort of cooperation. Three, book three of the Merseyside series. Of the Merseyside series. series. Yeah. That, that's the, again, that sort of cooperation is, is lovely. Um, you're in, feeling that then you're, you're in the right place. So it sounds like you're in quite a, an unusual position in that you've got your Harrogate series that's self-published and you've got the Merseyside series that is going through Hobeck Books yes. as a publisher. What do you find are the advantages and disadvantages of, of each for you as a, an author? It, it's always good to have uh, to be with a publisher 
um, because they take away a lot of the pressure. They take away the pressure of the book cover, although you're involved in, in, in the design. They take away the pressure of advertising and making sure your book is put in front of people. They also encourage you to do various things with them, uh, and that's great. But as a self-published, everything is on you. You know, they, they're spinning their plates. So hold back. I'm spinning my plates for, for the um, self-published work. And it's hard and it's expensive. And what I decided that when I came independent, when I, when I had my own self-published books, that the money that would normally go out to a publisher, let's say 50% of the royalties would go to the publisher, I would spend that 50% on advertising. And that's been an eye-opener for me. Uh, learning to advertise using different uh, platforms. And it, it made me laugh, really, because you get quite a few people guiding, wanting to guide you. Uh, come and do this course on advertising for, like, let's say, Amazon. And it made me think of the gold rush, where everybody rushed in to get gold. And the only people who really made money were the guys selling the shovels and the picks. And it seems the same, in a way, with, 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 with advertising, that you pay these people money to learn how to advertise. Do you do it well? Do you... There's no way of judging. You it must be a gamble really sometimes. Massive. Financial gamble. And again, for somebody starting off, it's something that they can't really afford to do. So word of mouth, joining social media, becoming part of book groups and readers groups, being involved, not pushing your book, not prostituting your talent, but making sure that you're known, going to various events around the country. There are quite a few noir events and, and writing events becoming part of that and just trying to climb the mountain slowly. I had a, dis a discussion with a, a really successful author called Angie Marsons and I was going to give up and she said, no, 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 don't give up, uh, stay on the mountain. And uh, every now and again, if the books do very well, I say, uh, climbing the mountain, Angie, climbing the mountain. <laughs> and it's lovely. I never get to the top, but one day you never know. Uh, absolutely. Um, you have to be somewhere on it to get to the top, as long as I don't come down to the bottom as long as you don't come sliding down yes, absolutely with the avalanche or whatever it is <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're writing full-time now obviously from from what you've said so far what does a writing day work like and perhaps also you know when do you know when to stop because I'm, you know again from a musician's point of view as, as i am i can be locked away and 12 hours can disappear if you're not careful how does that work in the writing field uh, at my stage now i set myself a challenge of a thousand words a day it's not a lot, but I try to do a thousand words. Because that also means reading the thousand words from the previous day and adjusting those. That doesn't come into the thousand words I'm going to do today. And then writing. And that will then sit on the table. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it might be 1,500, sometimes it might be 900. It, 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 it's not written in stone, but it's so nice to have a challenge. Do you look at the rewrite and the review of yesterday's work first? Yes before you start yes. on the thousand words to yes. because that's critical it also re refreshes your mind where you left off I also try to leave a note where I want the next day's work to go so did I did I cover that the previous day did, did, did I achieve what I was hoping to achieve from the, the day before that if yes then I can carry straight on if no let's adjust that Let, let's make it or an idea might have come to me in the middle of the night or it takes me in a different direction or a red herring might have to go in at that, that point. Because there's no forward plan. 
in my writing. I was just going to ask that about storyboarding. So have you, have you got it mapped out? No. Nope. Nope. The end of the book? No, nope. don't know what the ending is going to be. Really? I'd, yeah, I'm over halfway through now and I still don't know what the ending will be. So what, what's the idea? When you sit down to <clears> write the first page or the first chapter of a book, do you... One idea. You must have a theme. One idea. Right. Just an idea. Right. And it could come from anywhere. The idea for the Damascene moment, which was the, the book that was released at the end of last year, came from an experience I had while teaching in a special school. And it was a child that used to go up on the roof because he didn't want to go home. And that's how that started, writing that scene of the kid on the roof, which was vivid to me. It was, it was the easiest part to write. And then that took off. But I didn't know what the, way, the direction it was going to take. And that's part of the pleasure of it all, really. It's also the worry, believe you me. It's also the worry. <clears throat> what do I write today? And, and, and once, you're, once you're typing away... But this is the way that people like Ian Rankin work. We're known as pantsers because we just sit down and write. Whereas people like Frederick Forsyth are planners to the nth degree and they have their storyboards set out, they know where they're going. And that's where their time is taken, where mine is taken, sitting at the keyboard and developing the idea. But it's also about keeping that idea in your head, which is not easy. And, and again, every now and again, probably every so many days, I'll read the whole manuscript. I am on the right course. I'm, I'm happy with that. And it's worked for, for 12 books, well, 12, 13, 14, 15 books. So why change it? Mm. So what does the future hold? Um, well, I've got book three to write for Holbeck, and it will be coming, uh, and it will be coming this year. I've got to finish book 13. And then uh, I would love very much for somebody to come along and say, do you know what, we'd really like to take on your Harrogate series as a publisher. Or as an agent, and then look to move it on. I'll be 70 in two months' time. Will I have the energy, uh, or if anything happens to me, what will happen to the series? Will it just wither on the vine? So I have to consider now where it might go. It's been lovely being self-published, but I can't rely on people I leave behind to carry it on. And I wouldn't like it to die. There's too much work in there for me. Uh, It's a fantastic legacy. I mean, the stories are just... Amazing, they're complex, they get you thinking. Uh, Thank you. To, and really, that's a question I was asking about how you write it because the, the end, I, th- I think, how's this going to work out? And I'm just intrigued to know that you haven't got the end in sight when you start writing the book. Well, it, it tickles me sometimes, Ian, because I meet people and they say, Oh, in, in Game Point, I knew who'd done it by the third chapter. And I thought, Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know by the tenth chapter. <laughs> but, but then maybe that's because I've written it fairly well. And that I've given them the clues that yeah. I didn't have. I've gone back and added clues in yeah. at the end of the story. It's sort of red herrings. Yeah. And uh, that's a nice skill to have. When you finish your book, you read it through and you might add a few more bits in just to take people off a track or yeah. onto the track to find the answer. That's fantastic. I've got one last question, mm. which is one I ask all of my guests. Knowing what you know now, what one piece of advice would you give that younger self of you? Well, it comes into two. The first point is be brave and do what you think is right at the time. But also, I, I try to think of a pond and a pebble and chucking the pebble in the pond as the decision and watching where every ripple ends before you make that decision. And when you're happy with where it's settled, then move. But don't move straight away. Take time. What do they used to say? Sleep on it. And it's critical. Before you, if, if you get upset by somebody, don't just respond. Sleep on it. If you're happy then to respond in whatever way you're going to do, then do. But if not, 
Keep on. I think that's a great analogy because it's about reflection, but you can only see reflection once the ripples have, have gone. Mm. Ah, fantastic. Where can people find out more about you then if they don't know about your books already? Um, my website is www.malcolmhollingdrakeauthor.co.uk and on there you find lots of different things uh, and all the books are linked to Amazon. But if you wanted the Merseyside series, any any bookshop will, will either have them in or, or get them in. That's great. And uh, all of those links will be in the show notes. Thank you very much. Malcolm, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Lovely. That was a great insight into the world of writing fiction, especially if you've always thought that you may have a book in you. It just goes to show that it could even be a post-career aim. What I found invaluable in this interview was the advice on how to plan, research and approach getting the ideas down on a daily basis. This can apply to virtually any creative hobby, not just writing. However, I was quite shocked, having read all of Malcolm's books, that there's no storyboarding involved and he just had one idea that triggered the book. I just found that astounding. I can highly recommend both of his series and bet that you'd be equally mystified that his intricate storylines are triggered by just one initial idea. Huge thanks to Malcolm for taking a break from writing book 13 of the Harrogate series to do the interview. You can find a link to his website and his Amazon bookshop in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the series wherever you get your pods and review the back catalogue. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and until next time, bye for now. Thank you.